0: You've heard of the Law of Attraction. You've likely even tried some of the old-school manifestation techniques. Why, after saying hundreds of positive affirmations and constantly attempting to get into some high-vibe state, does it feel like nothing is shifting? It's likely because you aren't manifesting from your unique energetic alignment. Want to find out how you can manifest more consistently and effectively? Take the short, fun, and informative quiz that we created... And learn how to understand and utilize your energy to create abundance in your business. Go to www.manifestationquiz.com and take the quiz today. This is the Creative Soulpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Demas. Let's go. Welcome back to the Creative Soulpreneur Podcast. Today is a very special episode. And I mean very, very special because not only do we have a returning guest, Michelle Crowder. Michelle Welcome back. Thank you. But I am turning over the mic to her. And for those of you that don't know, let me say this first. For those of you that don't know Michelle, Michelle is... I don't even know the words to describe Michelle in my business. She's like part counselor, part coach, part integrator, part business, all things aficionado, truly the backbone of the business. And she's also a coach for me as well now and is really just a spectacular human being. And I couldn't think of a better person to interview me for the podcast. So we're flipping it over. And today she's going to interview me. I'm gonna hand it to her, and guess what, you all? I don't know what the questions are. I don't know what it's gonna be. I don't know how this is.
1: <laughs> ooh, the
0: control, the control, the control. I got the, you know, the 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 sweat is already starting. No, I'm really, really excited to have you do this, Michelle. I'm. This is gonna be really fun. Okay, I'm handing it over. Stop talking, Nick. Hand it over <laughs> yeah. to the new host, the new host of the Creative Soulpreneur Podcast for this episode, anyway, Michelle.
2: <laughs> Thank you. I'm so honored. And yes, I we have a very unique business relationship that I love and I'm so grateful for. And so I know that a lot of times when we're talking about sharing things in your business, there's so many things behind the scenes. You've lived like such a rich life so far that like you touch on certain things with your story that I just feel like People need to know more. And so I know when we first met, you were, your signature offer at the time was Real Stories That Sell, which has since it found another iteration um, as Brand Stories That Sell. But at the time, I, you know, my impression of you was like, wow, he knows so much about storytelling. This guy has won a Tony. That was like a huge deal for me. And so I just was so impressed by the way that you had brought storytelling to people but as we worked together I realized that there's a lot more to your story that brought you to that point point. and so I guess one of the first things I want to go way back and find out a little bit more about when you first started your professional acting career and what that was like for you.
0: So really I started When I was really young, I was 16 when I had my first professional job and I was hired, it was a musical, I was hired to dance and sing, but I was like an ensemble kid. Mm -hmm. But within two years, I'd already began choreographing. I got hired by that same theater to choreograph. I was like still in high school. So I was 15 17. Yeah, I was still in high school and I was already hired professionally to choreograph. I was this like super go-getting person, I will say. Mm-hmm. Like if I was going to conquer, I had this really strong sense of drive and determination and goal. Mm-hmm. Broadway was definitely the goal at, at that time,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it drove everything. It drove it drove it all and I loved being around these professional creative people. And so I did everything. This is something also at 15 years old, that first job. Yeah. I was an actor in the show, but mm-hmm. it was like, like a season,
1: mm-hmm.
0: an entire season of shows. I was only cast in one show. And so I went to work behind the scenes. I worked mm-hmm. in props. I worked in costumes. I worked in the box office. I worked for, for the uh, executive director of the theater at one point, I went in there for, for like three weeks and was like, okay, show me, show me, tell me, help me. I learned the business side, you know, even that very early at 15, I was like, I was on it. And now, you know, what were they really sharing with me the business numbers? No, but, right. I, but and I was doing primarily like, you know, go take these, these, old school, go take these flyers and put them on cars. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I was, you name it, I did it because right. I wanted to learn all aspects of the business. But truly, I was this dancer first, first mm-hmm. and foremost. And by nineteen I moved to New York. I did a national tour of a show of a musical wow. called The Pajama Game. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was a steam heat dancer. You know that you know, I got Steam oh, nice. I got. Yeah, I was a steam heat dancer on the Pajama Game tour that I auditioned for and got it, uh, which was mm-hmm. crazy. Um, mm-hmm. And so I went on the road. And then right after that, I had that was like the tour ended in the spring, as tour mm-hmm. seasons do. And I had basically the summer before I had to go back to college because suppose, mm-hmm. so supposedly I was going back to college, right? Mm-hmm. But I said, Oh, you know what? I'm going to go to New York for the summer. I mean, what the heck? I didn't know anybody there. I literally had $800, say, from this tour in my pocket. I'd never been to New York before. And I, there was something in me that that knew I was never coming back. Mm. Like I knew I wasn't going back to college. That's what I told my parents. If you're Mm -hmm. listening, mom, sorry, I lied. (laughs) but I knew that I was going to New York. I, I, in my mind, I was like, if I'm already getting the job, why am I going to go study to get the job? So I knew that I was going to New York, packed up my suitcase. It was like, it was like Peggy Sawyer. It was full on Peggy (laughs) Sawyer, 42nd street. I got my tap shoes and I got my suitcase. (laughs) And New York, New York, here I was, right?
1: Yeah.
0: And things happened fairly quickly for me. I auditioned within the first week, basically, and got a job, mm-hmm. thankfully, right, very yeah. fortunately. Yeah. And it snowballed. But I will say that I got into a rut. Mm. Got into a rut of taking a job
1: mm-hmm. rather
0: than looking at a career because I didn't have anybody mm-hmm. guiding me.
2: Right. So just like whatever job came your way, you were like, yes, survival must.
0: Uh, I was in full on survival mode and I can look back at it now and be like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, yeah, you moved to New York with $800. You didn't have, I I love my parents, but they were not that supportive at that time of these decisions, which now Mm -hmm. I get as a, you know, (laughs) as an adult, I kind of get it. I'm like, oh, gee, yeah. Just what you want your kid at 19 years old to pack a bag and move to New York City with, without a college education. Like, yeah. what?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So it was a bit like, you're gonna do it on your own. And so I was in mm-hmm. fight or flight mode. And it was like, well, I have to work. Gotta do it, mm-hmm. gotta make it happen. So I was still making it happen, but I began spinning my wheels a bit.
2: So you had all this passion and all this drive and, you know, talent clearly. Cause even with all the passion and drive, you, you have to have some talent but you didn't have mentorship and what other challenges do you think you were facing that were keeping you from having a career rather than just a gig type life?
0: You know, in addition to that lack of mentor, that fight or flight, I just have to Mm -hmm. work to make money, to live, to exist. I was also, while I was talented Mm -hmm. in one way, I was never the This has been like the story of my career, the best dancer or the Mm. best singer or the best actor. I was like kind of good at everything. Mm. And that was an interesting thing because, you know, you'd go in and I would go to dance calls usually first because if Mm -hmm. I got kept from the dance call, I knew I was going to book the job if if I made it past that dance cut, I was going to book the job because I was a strong enough singer to be better than the other singers.
1: Mm.
0: So I, I always like was like strategizing without, even without a mentor, I was like strategizing <laughs> like my career, but what I was really, really not good at what mm-hmm. I desperately failed at, to be honest. And this is, you know, failures, all lessons, right. Along right. the path, which is really, you know, it helps me now with clients and with what mm-hmm. I teach and what I offer the world was that I was really a ter- terrible, terrible networker
1: mm-hmm.
0: I always felt like it was icky. I always yeah. felt like those like sort of fake Broadway mm-hmm. friendships were not for me. What I didn't really understand was that that's how you how you get jobs. Yes, right. you can go audition, but if there are two people and they know the person knows the person. Of mm-hmm. equal or even a little less talent, but they've already mm-hmm. worked with them or they know them, they're going to go to that person.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I didn't fully understand it. And then I was resentful of it
1: mm. that
0: I hadn't made, that I couldn't, like, it was almost like I felt like I couldn't break into that circle, that mm. social circle, the Broadway club, I called it. Yeah. And, I became almost resentful of it in many ways. Now, simultaneously, many ways it took care of itself for me because mm-hmm. while I was struggling with that, I also began to struggle with being a dancer because mm-hmm. one of the things that the industry really does or did is that it pigeonholes you. You are mm-hmm. either this or you're that. Yeah. And I suddenly got into that dancer category. And I made the decision that that was not for me. I went out to LA for a little bit. I don't, I've never really told this part of the story. No. I went to LA for a little bit to be an actor. I went and studied acting. Mm. And while I'm in LA, I was meeting with all these agents. Mm -hmm. And an agent said something to me that totally shifted my entire career. And, you know, now looking back, it's like, well, he was right, but it was also really shitty. Yeah. And what he said to me was, you're talented, Nick, but you're too light.
2: Hmm. What does that mean?
0: Yeah. So light back in the day was code word for too gay.
2: Oh, okay. Ouch. Ouch.
0: And that stung. But it was also a gift in many ways because he was right. Like Mm -hmm. at that time. Right. At that time. This was pre-Ellen coming out of the closet. There was no, but literally nobody on television that was out of the closet. And there weren't any queer characters on TV. They did not exist. And so I was like, oh, I can't play straight in the way that they would want me to be the straight man. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to have a career in television and film. Got it. I got to go back to theater. So then I went back and was like, you know, kind of dancing again.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But then really had this realization, and I told that story many times of being on Radio City and having the realization that mm-hmm. this was not for me. It's and if you, you want to hear that story, you can go to episode one of the podcast. It's in the first episode. But I just realized that it wasn't for me, and I knew that I had to begin to create, to be the the originator, to be the creator. And so that's when I decided to start directing and choreographing.
2: Okay. And so before we get into like the next steps of your journey, something that you said that really stood out to me is when you were talking about the networking and how it seemed phony to you. And we see that a lot with the people that like to work with you that the modern day business networking, online marketing feels phony. And I'm, I'm curious, like, looking back, I mean, you were really young back then and it was, there were a lot of different dynamics happening. Do you feel like you could have networked in a way that felt true to you and didn't feel fake and yucky?
0: You know, I wasn't comfortable in my skin enough Mm. at that time. I was grappling with my sexuality in many ways, even though I was out of the closet, I was still grappling with it. It was Mm -hmm. within an industry that didn't really support that. And I didn't feel like with choreographers, this is going to, this is really tough spilling the tea today with (laughs) choreographers, particularly the male gay choreographers. It was like, like, almost, you almost had to use your sexuality. You almost had to use your body to sort of get into that circle. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And it was about like how you looked and how you presented. And that just felt very inauthentic to me at the time. Now, was that actually true or was that my perception? That's right. actually interesting now that I can look back and say, I just wasn't comfortable in my skin. I wasn't mm-hmm. comfortable with who I was enough to be able to be that real. Right. Now, years later, I'm at a Broadway opening when I'm producing. I'm jumping ahead, but we'll, we can jump and then go back.
1: Yeah. Here
0: I am trying to, trying to control the interview. We could jump <laughs> and then go back. I'm telling you how to interview me.
2: That's all right. I'll take control back. Don't worry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Years later, I was with a friend at an opening night party,
1: Mm -hmm. my friend
0: Lisa. And it was a networking event. And I was like, oh, you know, an opening night party is a networking event. This is how Mm -hmm. you make the connections. And, And they are needed. They are needed. These kind of connections, not only are they needed, they're so helpful. Right. But they have to be authentic to you. And I'm not really a small talk person. That's not my favorite thing to do in the world. I don't like, you know, it's just not. No. My friend, I said, oh, you know, my date, Lisa, I said, I got to get up and go around. And she goes, do you? Uh, She was like, no, you don't. She said, what if you just stay right here? What if right here is home? You can call this home base. If you want to go get a drink and come back, what if this is home? What if you stay here and you wait for people to come to you? And I was like, oh huh. She's like, you know what? The right people are actually going to come by. Mm. And sure enough, I sat there and people that I felt that I was supposed to go talk to, they came Mm -hmm. to me. Mm. And then I would have deeper conversations because I wasn't just trying to work the room. Right. So that was like a profound shift for me about Mm -hmm. how to network in a way that's really authentic. And then Mm -hmm. later on, a friend in the entertainment business, with my husband
1: mm-hmm.
0: gave me this great, I mean, she didn't mean to give it to me like this. It wasn't like mm-hmm. to be used like this, but she was meeting Michael for the first time and he's a fish out of water in, in these worlds, right? Like this <laughs> is not his world. He's not in the entertainment industry, yeah. but he's a designer and he's meeting all these people mm-hmm. and they're, you know, they all kind of, Can have, there can be this thing of what can you do for me in the entertainment industry, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. so if they find out he's an interior designer, they go, oh, nice, and they move on.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, this woman said to her, instead of saying, What do you do? She said, What is your passion? She asked Mm -hmm. him, What is your passion? And then that lit him up. And I was like, Wow, that's like the best networking tool ever. She didn't intend it for that, but I was like, That I'm going to take and use. Mm -hmm. And so that is one of the questions I asked. So that Even if it's like this networking thing, you have like a question that's going to light people up because everyone wants to talk about their passion and then you just listen.
2: Right. That's awesome. And so it sounds like your friend Lisa was super wise, but also at that point in your life, I mean, do you feel like you had gotten comfortable enough in your skin where you were able to take that advice and hear it and to just be able to stand there in your presence and like be witnessed?
0: I had. Because in between that, I spent years, nine years, as the artistic director of a regional theater, of Lyric Theater of Oklahoma. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And with that job came lots of visibility. Right. I had to learn what it meant and how to be authentically visible, how to be myself. Mm -hmm. Because before that, I'd been an actor, ultimately, and a dancer. And when you're in the chorus, you're not even that scene. I mean, yes, I right. did have acting roles. I did have roles over time. Mm-hmm. But you're still being seen as somebody else. And then right. I go to to Lyric, and one of the first things that I have to do is give a curtain speech. Mm-hmm. You know, when the, the, the artist director the executive director yep. of the theater comes out and they give the speech. <laughs> and, you know, I was so uncomfortable. To say I was right. uncomfortable would be, like, the biggest understatement in the world. I made them pull out a podium so I could hold on to something at the first year. <laughs> Like I was holding on. My friend Laura likes to tell that she's a conductor and she was like in the pit. She likes to tell this story of me, like holding on for dear life to the podium with my list and I was like mechanically like talking through it just to get through it. Yeah. Some days I would go out and have a glass of wine before I had to do it because I was like, I got to loosen up. got to loosen up. I got to go do that speech.
2: It's shocking to me, honestly. And it, it's making me feel better about myself. So anyway, continue.
0: Well, I just was not used to talking publicly. I had no public speaking you. experience as me, as an actor. Right. If you had told me you're going to go do a, a scene, I would have been totally fine because that's not right. me. I was like, again, that, um, that comfortability within your skin thing. Like I just Mm -hmm. was, but what I learned was that it was a practice Mm -hmm. that over time I grew more comfortable, but I was also growing more comfortable in who I was as a human, who I was in this role as an, as a leader in a community. I mean, I was 28 years old when I got that job. Talk about young to be an arts leader in a community in a moderate size city. It's like the 20th. Mm -hmm largest market in the country now so that's you know what I'm saying like I was I had to millions of people are in that that community and here I was an arts leader in the community I had to step into that I had to grow into it I wore a tie every single day not because I really wanted to but because I needed to feel like I was in the sense of power this sense of importance or this sense of whatever that was like a costume that I had to put on and I had to hold on to that lectern that I was telling you about until finally I didn't need it anymore Mm -hmm. and then over time I sort of grew into this like position and being fully comfortable with myself Mm -hmm. on stage in that way fast forward however we decided to do a production of cabaret okay and I decided I was gonna play the MC. I cast myself as the MC. (laughs) I had done the role previously by the way so this wasn't the first time but yeah it was the full experience, I have to tell you, in that mm-hmm. I went back to, you know, voice lessons and I was dieting mm-hmm. and I was like the full, like the full actor mm-hmm. experience, right? For almost right. a year, because I knew for a year that I was going to do this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I w- it was so nerve wracking because now I did have this sort of stature within the community. People did know me. Mm-hmm. They knew me as mm-hmm. me, not as an actor. And so then I was putting all this pressure on myself, right? To be something right. for these people. For this people, these people, for these people, for the audience, <laughs> the, for the community,
1: right.
0: and that I've grown this relationship with. Well, opening night came. I walk out onto stage, and I go to sing my first note. I turn around. It was like the, the way it was staged is there was a door. I open the door. I shut the door, and I would turn around, and then I begin to sing. Well, mm-hmm. they gave me entrance applause. Aww. I was, like, <laughs> so a shocked. But B, in my head, I was like, what was going on in my head was, oh, my God. Oh, no. Don't applaud. I haven't done anything yet. You can't applaud me just for being me. I don't me. deserve this. I don't deserve this. And then in my head, I was like, get back in the show. Get back in the show. You're singing. Yeah. You're singing. And it's, it's opening night. You've got to get back in the show. You know, all of this was happening. But I had a realization sort of after of, oh, the applause wasn't for this moment or what I was about to do It was for the – seven years that I had put into the community and, the, and what I had and mm-hmm. then I realized oh yeah they always gave me entrance applause not always but the last few years of it they gave mm-hmm. me entrance applause when I came out to give the speech because they'd gotten to know me mm-hmm. so of course I should have assumed I was going to get entrance applause but one should not ever assume right. you're going to get entrance applause of but course. you know what I'm saying
2: and when you're in character and you're like you know, that doesn't happen in rehearsal and you go out there and you're like, what? They're clapping already.
0: (laughs) Now, the interesting thing about this production too is it was incredibly polarizing. And this Mm -hmm. is something that I really had to learn was how to be polarizing and be okay with it. Mm -hmm. Because believe it or not, cabaret in certain parts of the country still risque, was still too much. It was still out there. It was, uh, Mm -hmm. there was a, letter writing campaign to the the, the local newspaper calling for my resignation as an arts leader.
2: Oh my goodness.
0: Because of the filth and the smut that I was bringing to Oklahoma. Wow. That was hard. I have to tell you, that was hard to receive that. It was shocking. It was, I thought, kind of frightening in a way. It was like, oh my God, am I going to lose my job over this? But I was supported. So it was like, it had very strong reactions. Like here I am getting intense applause and a standing ovation and I'm getting people calling for my resignation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah. I had to learn how to be okay with that.
2: I definitely want to know how you learned to be okay with that. But even going back to the beginning of when you were starting here and you were so young and you were in this leadership position, other than, you know, Wearing your tie and having the occasional drink to get you ready. What kind of things did you do to support yourself through such a time where I imagine a lot lot of imposter syndrome type things could be coming up or anything like that? So oddly,
0: no, that did not come up. And here's why. I was 28. I was naive. Mm. That had this sort of Dunning-Kruger thing you've heard of this, of, of like not knowing what you don't know. So therefore it's not a problem. It wasn't until later that some of that imposter syndrome came in of, Oh, I don't know what I don't know. Right. I also just had so much drive and determination again, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and a
0: belief, an absolute belief that I could help this theater and that what I didn't know, I could find out. Right. I knew people I could call which I did. I called upon people that had run theaters that theaters that I'd worked at before I called for advice if something came up, but I also just had this, what I knew about leadership was that if you surround yourself by the best possible people and you have a common goal and vision Mm
1: -hmm. that
0: it would happen.
1: Right.
0: I was really clear on where I wanted to take the theater. And I think that actually was really, really helpful. And I just kept surrounding myself with really brilliant people that were better than I was at anything. While I might not have been the best, again, at any one thing, what I was really good at was empowering people to be their best and also trusting their expertise.
2: Okay. So again, you had this really great passion and drive and now vision is a big part of it. And surrounding yourself with these people that lift you higher and So in many ways, it's like, this is a high point in your life, career, like it's feeling like the visibility should match that. The visibility should be like, look, everybody appreciates what I'm doing. And on on the one level, you did have that. But on the other hand, you were suddenly exposed in like what felt very misunderstood type of way. And so how did you handle that?
0: You know... I was a mini celebrity Mm -hmm. there, which sounds weird, but I was Mm -hmm. on TV a lot, you know, with interviews and whatnot. I was on, like, the cover of the local magazines. A friend of mine from out of town had told their friend, oh, my friend, like, he's big Mm -hmm. there in Oklahoma City. And she was like, "Uh uh-huh, sure, sure, sure. She gets to the hotel, and there's my... My picture in like the hotel brochure, like the local, like you know that you know when you go to a hotel and they have like those local what to do here kind of things, and there was my picture on the cover. So that's how visible I was. Mm -hmm. I'd go into a restaurant. My parents, Mm -hmm. when they came to visit, they were like, because I would walk into a restaurant and they'd be like, Mm -hmm. oh, right this way, and they'd give us free stuff. You know that kind of like level Mm -hmm. of visibility. So I'm like a mini celebrity in that community. So when the bottom fell out Mm -hmm. for a moment. I I was hurt. Yeah. To be honest, I went through this period of like I can't believe that you know it was mm-hmm. very like poor me. I can't believe how, what I did for this community and now I'm it's being backfiring and coming back. Like I went mm-hmm. through that in my head and processed those feelings. Now that was all like ego stuff, which was in many ways good because my ego needed to be mm-hmm. like checked here. And I think that was the mm-hmm. gift of it. And then I also realized that I had unhealed trauma that I needed mm-hmm. to be working through. Because why did I feel the need to be like the best boy in the world? Why did I feel the need to be so visible? Why mm-hmm. did I need that? I needed it. And a couple of things happened. I was, I was in therapy and was really working on it there. And then I also began like a yoga practice Now, I didn't know what I was doing. I built this yoga shanty Mm -hmm. in my backyard, and my friend Carolyn Weatherford, thank you, Carolyn, created it for me. And I used these videos, Rodney Yee videos, that to sort of, I was trying to sort of work from the outside in a bit, as well as working with my therapist. And in that, I realized, oh, I wanted, I needed some time off. It was after that that I realized I needed some time off. And I went, decided I was going to go to a teacher training program back in New York. I always kept an apartment in New York, and I flew back, and I took a month off the job. Basically, I worked at night, but I wasn't like in mm-hmm. the office kind of. And in the yoga teacher training, I didn't go to be a teacher. I just went to deepen my practices and learn to be able to help myself ultimately. But in in the practice, in the the teacher training, I'm sitting there, and we're doing this meditation. And what comes to me was you need to quit your job.
1: Mm.
0: And I was like, oh no, nope, 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 nope. I like that health insurance. <laughs> yeah. I like that steady paycheck. But I knew something there was true. And it took me another year, really, to to really honor that. Mm-hmm. That year, it's sort of like it's like niggling in my brain mm-hmm. for about a year oh yeah, you need to do this. You need to quit your job. You need to, you want to do something else. It's time to do something else. It's time okay. to grow. was actually what was coming up because I had gotten to this pinnacle of visibility, but also the theater had really grown. It had become right. more visible. And I knew that I had taken it to where I mm-hmm. felt I could take it. And it was time for me to hand it off to somebody else so that I could go on to do some other things. Woo. That year was rough. I bet. But I did eventually do it. I did eventually give the theater a year notice so they could find somebody else to take over. And I went back to New York and became a producer and a yoga teacher. Because
2: when you find something that you're passionate about, you're just full steam ahead.
0: <laughs> you know me. I'm all in. I am all in.
2: I feel like I've touched on this and... In- like, with my last few questions, but it's just, it feels like one of the big lessons there, and we see this with, like, big Hollywood celebrities, like, visibility is not always a good thing, and that people are often, especially, like, the more visible you get, people are waiting to, like, knock you down once they build you up, kind of, but for someone who, it sounds like once you became comfortable in your own skin, you enjoyed visibility until all of a sudden it was like a different kind of visibility that you experienced. And that was painful.
0: I'll tell you what was painful about that. Going back to that, what was painful about that was that that was a version of Mm. me. That wasn't actually the real me, right? That was a role that I was playing. And I'm not talking about the MC. That was the role that I was playing as the artistic director in the community. And while I say I was getting more comfortable with myself, it wasn't fully me yet. It was still a version that I felt that that audience wanted of me or needed of me. Now, I was the first out openly gay, like, arts leader in that community. I was very much myself in some ways, but I was still, like, wearing the tie. I was still playing a role. So yes, I became very visible. And celebrities talk about this in that they get like instant, especially those that are more instant, they get Mm -hmm. that instant fame and then they don't know how to handle it. And that's why a lot of them will crash and burn. They haven't done that work. So I was simultaneously trying not to crash and burn while doing some inner work to build, but it wasn't, I wasn't fully there yet. I really wasn't. And that was a big part of what the yoga journey was for me and the therapy journey like I said, was really digging into these feelings that I was having because yeah, it wasn't all great that I was that visible. People knew it was such a small town too. As big as it is, it's a small town. If I did something, I would like at the gym or I said something Mm -hmm. to somebody at the gym at 10 in the morning by four in the afternoon, it would get back to me that somebody heard what I
1: had said.
2: Mm -hmm. Wow. I can't even imagine honestly. And so, you know, on a maybe a smaller scale that plays out in the business world and the creative world where we put ourselves out there. And I just think it's important to reiterate that like visibility can be scary and it can take deep work like therapy and yoga and whatever to it's, it's not a weakness that you're like scared of visibility because it's
0: no, in fact, it, you know, usually whatever you're scared of is really mm -hmm. your superpower. And part of it, it was that my nervous system, I had to train my nervous system to be okay being uncomfortable. It's like this little step out that you take. Let's say you're going to do your first post Mm -hmm. on social. You may not do it with your face on it. You might just do a meme, Mm -hmm. but that's comfortable. And you're okay with that. And then it's like, okay, well, maybe now I I need to put my face Mm -hmm. a picture of me. Oh, but that brings up something in me. Okay, but then I can get used to that and do that. This is the practice. There's a practice of visibility, which is really a practice of vulnerability. And then you take the next step of, oh, well, I guess I need to go on camera. Huh. Am I going to talk on camera? What does that mean to turn the camera on Mm -hmm. and speak? And then it leads to the next thing and so on and so on and so on. But it's about training your body to be okay in the uncomfortability. And fight or flight takes over. That old part of the brain is going to, you know, attack because that's what we were taught. I mean, over the years, that was was developed or not taught. What it was developed for was to keep you safe. So it's constantly trying to keep you safe. And so you're slowly over time teaching it that you actually are safe in this in case somebody attacks. Because what does vulnerability mean? To be vulnerable is to be open to being harmed or attacked.
2: You know, there's so much we could talk about here. And I, I think as the conversation goes on, we'll get into some more of that. But moving on in like the timeline of your life, so you'd experienced this level of visibility where you were basically a mini celebrity. And then fast forward to when you start making the film.
1: Invisible,
2: which originally you were not a part of. You were an invisible part of the film. So tell me what you have to do there. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So there's an irony here that the film's titled Invisible. When I, when I was asked to be a part of the film, it was brought to me by actually somebody that I had worked at at Lyric when I gave her her first job, who is now a producer, and she came to me and she said, Hey, do you know anything about fibromyalgia? and i said my mother has fibro she said oh my gosh i said i said yes i'm in to make this film but mm-hmm. as a director not to be on camera that was not <laughs> the plan i was to be invisible behind the scenes because at this point you realize since then since the, mm-hmm. that lyric time i had totally gone to mm-hmm. behind the scenes i was producing and directing as a freelancer and through my an entertainment company, including big musicals on Broadway. Right. But that's all behind the scenes. I was no longer really in the visible seat minus one visibility moment. That was truly a nightmare. And maybe we should go to that after I talk about invisible because it's truly was the biggest nightmare ever of my entire career.
2: Uh, now we have to go to that, but yes, <laughs> since we've started the talk about invisible, let's tell me about that. And then you have to tell me about the nightmare. Okay. So
0: <laughs> invisible. What happened was, as we were making the film, I kept saying, I have that symptom. I have that symptom. Oh, my gosh, I have that symptom. And then I found out there was a genetic component. And when we found out there was a genetic component, my producer said to me, you need to go on camera and get tested. And I was like, no,
1: no, no, what?
0: No, I resisted it for a bit but I knew she was right because I knew no matter what happened, it would make the story better. And so in service of the story, I decided to go get tested. And there was this part of me that knew that it was going to be true that I had fibromyalgia because after having studied it for two years, I knew that this was me. And so then I did go on camera, get tested. And I did come, spoiler alert, did (laughs) prove that I had fibromyalgia Well, was diagnosed, and to prove is the wrong word, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And that was pretty significant when then I realized, oh, you're going to be in this film, and you're going to share with the world the moment that you discovered you have a debilitating syndrome. Yeah. That was a new level. You know, we talk about, like, being on camera, being on stages. This is a new level of being vulnerable on camera for millions of people, hopefully.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's even when we suspect that we might have, you know, something going on and in many ways it can be validating to learn that like, oh, there's a diagnosis or, you know, it's still like a new reality that you have to wrap your head around. And you were on screen while that was happening. So,
0: yeah, I mean, Um. if you watch the film, you witness it in real time of my processing the diagnosis the life sentence we call it the tagline of the film is it's invisible a life sentence because once you have it you have it and there's no cure so it was definitely this moment of being very open to whatever was going to happen and mm-hmm. processing it i did an initial process on camera but the truth is that then i it, it took me months To process it and then even more months to realize oh this is going to be very public there are a lot of people with fibromyalgia a lot Mm -hmm. millions 10 million in america alone which tells you that there are a lot of celebrities that have it speaking of celebrities but they don't talk about it gaga finally did but in general people don't talk about it because it is a debilitating can be a debilitating syndrome it isn't for me thankfully but i do have to be careful and be wise but people cannot get in like I was denied some uh life insurance because of it. So people mm-hmm. can be denied insurance, can be denied, you know, many things because of it. And so mm-hmm. people hide consequently. Right. So it's not lost on me that I became visible with this syndrome in a film that's called Invisible.
2: Wow. Well, like you said, you continued to process that. Again, at that point you had already done a lot of work in therapy and yoga to be in a healthy place where sharing that vulnerably being visible was initially fight or flight. Like you were able to come back to like regulation.
0: Yeah, I was ready. I was ready to share it as well as one can be because when you you can say, Oh, I'm ready. And then when it happens, it's a different experience, but I had done a lot of work and I do mean a lot of work on myself to be in that place.
2: And you, once you realize that you needed more processing and, and all of that, you are aware of the resources that you could go to. Correct. I have now,
0: y'all, I have a, a Rolodex. Like remember the old school cards? when you had cards in your Rolodex. Like I could, like, I have, I have a list of healers and therapists. And I mean, my, my network is so huge in that way. Now, speaking of networking, it's so huge in that sense that all the tools that are, Humanly possible talk about privilege we talk about about privilege a bit in the film because of the privilege of resources financially. I have this wealth of help
2: and so all right, nightmare I'm wondering if maybe I know what this is and you're I just tell me just the tell nightmare
0: me is. is a is something called the Broadway Fashion report.
2: Oh, I think you have told me a little bit about this, but I want more people to know
0: okay. I got called by a friend who was a producer and said, Hey, we're doing this show. It's about Broadway and fashion. And we think you're kind of fashionable and we think you'd be really good for the show to be the Broadway expert. And now I have to tell you egoically for somebody to call you and say, we want you to be the expert on their TV show. You're like, Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, I'm going to be that. And, you know, I really toyed with this idea of like being on camera again, being a host. I kind of really wanted to do that. And so I said, yes. And the mistake was there were several mistakes here, but number one (laughs) was I don't give a shit about fashion. I mean, do I like to be fashionable? Yes. That's what they saw. But do I care about this designer label and that I no, I don't care. So mistake, 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 mistake. Number one, was not being aligned with who I am as a human being. Mistake mm-hmm. number two was that they were fairly inexperienced producers and we didn't do a chemistry test between the three hosts.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We did not have a full rehearsal. And here we are being like, it was supposed to be like the sort of Joan Rivers, you know, like fashion, like police kind of <laughs> yeah. idea. Only it was for Broadway and it was like the Broadway red carpet for the Tonys. Well, they did do a big campaign, right? So I'm plastered Mm -hmm. everywhere. There's photos of me coming on this night. And I was telling everyone I knew to go to it. And it was on streaming before streaming was a huge deal yet. And so it was like one of the Mm -hmm. early streamers. And it was like, oh, we filmed the pilot and they were showing it the very next day. Mm. This was supposed to be a pilot for an entire like series. Yeah. Well, when it came out, well, first of all, when we were there, filming it I was like oh shit we are in trouble like I knew because my producer brain was taking over and I'm like outside watching the experience going oh my god this is a nightmare and I was just trying to stay (laughs) present and like be on camera as myself and that I did a good job with when I go back and I can look at it I can be like you were good you you did a good job but it was terrible the whole show was terrible the production was terrible everything was terrible (laughs) In fact, that same producer that was a friend who I'm still friends with today, not going to say her name, but thank you for still being my friend, said to me, you were the Scully who landed our plane in the Hudson. Oh, wow. Because we were going down, but I helped land the plane. (laughs) This was her words to me. That's how bad it was. So it comes out very publicly. And here I am being a host on this show that is so bad. And I mean, it is painful Aww. and so bad that, you know, the day before people were like, can't wait to see your show. I'm like, I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, like, my personal Facebook is full of that, right? Like, can ex- yeah. I'm so excited because I've been posting about it and everyone's been talking about it. There I am, like in the advertisements, me in this suit, looking all sharp. And it comes out and the next day, crickets.
1: Like Ugh. nothing
0: I've ever experienced. Like not nobody <laughs> reached out to me. To say, congratulations, that was great, good for you. My agent was like, oh, Nick.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting secondhand uncomfortable for you right now.
0: To say it was uncomfortable (gasps) would be like, (laughs) it was a nightmare. (laughs) And all that little boy stuff came up. Mm. All that unseen little boy in me came up of like, oh my gosh, and then I was angry. I was so angry and so sad and so confused and all those feelings that I got to sit with and be in. But it taught me so much. Taught me so much. There were so many lessons out of this huge, very visible failure. So many lessons that I carry with me.
2: Was that before invisible? I feel like it was. It
0: was. It was before invisible. It was between... You know, lyric. It was during the the producing time, the Memphis time, like during that period.
2: That's what I assume. Yeah, I just wanted to have a clear. It was timeline. And so, at this point, you've had triumphs, you've had setbacks, you've had the whole roller coaster of visibility, and and the lessons keep popping up. Like they, it doesn't just magically like I'm visible in a positive way forever for the rest of my life. And so I know the next big thing that came up for you, which you call your sole purpose project is body electric. How has that been?
0: Oddly before invisible became a personal narrative. I had the idea to create a personal documentary about my own body dysmorphia body image and body image and aging in the LGBTQ plus community. We started that journey and it was beautifully difficult to open up like that because I began to share things that I've never really shared publicly in that film. Not only the struggles that I had with my body, but why from Being in a, I love my family, I really do, but being the Mm -hmm. outsider, the black sheep in a family that was very much about masculinity and about rugged Mm -hmm. Montana cowboyness to Mm -hmm. really sharing and exposing the sexual abuse from my childhood in the film and sharing that. Right. And part of the reason that it's a sole purpose project is that it's really a lot of my own healing evolution in the film but also I knew that this was going to affect people deeply, this film and I knew that I was doing it to help people and I did Invisible also to help people but this was way more personal to to really, really help a community of people that need it and to shine a light on a very pervasive problem in the LGBTQ community that they're currently or were not wanting to look Mm -hmm. at Right. You know, 42% of all eating disorders in men are gay men, despite being 3% of the population. Right. You know, this is a big issue and one that hasn't been tackled thoughtfully. And so I knew that the story hadn't been told and I knew that I wanted to do it and I knew it needed to be personal in order to really touch people. Like in that very, that saying, the more personal, the more deeply universal I Mm -hmm. knew that I needed to go there and I knew what that was going to require of me. And it took Mm -hmm. seven years to make that film. Mm -hmm. And I think I needed the seven years, honestly, to make it be the film that it ended up being because it was so personal, because it was so deep, because I had to, you know, shine that flashlight into those deepest, darkest parts of myself that I hadn't previously wanted to share because it's not even just about the abuse. It was about my actions, the person that I was because of it, how I had done some really not so nice things in my life because of it. And I was sharing and exposing that as well, both the dark and the light. Right. And the interesting thing about this film now, now that it's out in the world a bit, we're mm-hmm. in the you know festivals, we're not on streamers yet, but on, in festivals, yeah. is that it's getting very, very strong reactions. Both Mm -hmm. positive and some negative. That polarizing Mm -hmm. thing again. You know, people are walking out of it. People aren't programming it. Some people aren't. It triggers some people. It's not for everyone. And yet, at all the screenings that we've had so far, somebody has come up to me and hugged me and held me and bawled. Mm. And we're talking like a straight guy, a 25-year-old gay man, a 75-year-old woman. Like, and for different points in the film, different reasons, not for the same reason. That's what's even been more like oof, amazing to me is that by me sharing my story, by me fully sharing it, by being mm-hmm. really raw. In fact, that's what people say when they see the film. They're like, it is real. It is raw. By being that mm-hmm. honest. And dare I say that vulnerable, ultimately, right. that's what's drawing people to me. That's mm-hmm. what they're being drawn to or repelled from.
2: Right, exactly.
0: And either way, it's amazing.
2: Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I don't know if this is the exact case with the negative reactions, but I think sometimes when people see people sharing something that is so raw and honest and whatever, that they can frame it as attention seeking Mm -hmm. because for their own, they haven't healed enough. To be in a place where sharing some of the dark corners of their soul feels safe. They, so it they like turn it around on the person who is healed and able to to share that kind of thing. And, and like you said, yours is coming from a place of like wanting to open up to people and have them be witnessed in another person's story.
0: And I think that's really what the differentiation is. Like what's the share and what's the overshare? Overshare right. is when you're just blabbing out your therapy to the entire world. Right. Sharing and being vulnerable is an offering. It's of service. Right. That's how you know the difference. And you can, in many ways, sense it. Like you see it online. You know when somebody is oversharing and when they're simply sharing a truth. Mm-hmm. And that truth is going to hit the core, like you said, somebody who maybe is feeling it or experiencing it, but not ready to deal with it and, or hasn't done work on themselves in a way that they're ready to share themselves in the way that you may be offering.
2: I mean, I've only been, you know, privy to like certain parts of this process, but I did get to watch an early screening of the movie and I really learned a lot from it myself. And what I think has come out of it, though, in your business and our work together is that we both realized that there's something, there's a different kind of visibility when you're already like in a healed place, you're used to being visible, but you're going to put your sole purpose project out into the world. It's It's like your baby. And that's a whole other kind of visibility that even people who have had success and had visibility, they're back at that vulnerable place again.
0: Yeah. That project took me back to my knees in a way. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I know, like getting down back on my knees, like, oh my gosh, praying that I, that I'm going to be able to like share this in a way that's authentic and real and vulnerable Mm -hmm. and be ready for the world to see it. Because Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of visibility as we talked about in this entire episode in my career we didn't even talk about like being on the red carpet at the Tonys and being on the Tony stage and, you know, lots of visibility, but this was like so deep and so Mm -hmm. important that I had to almost cycle back and go through all of it again Mm
1: -hmm. so that I
0: could be really fully present. The biggest thing that I had said before the premiere was that I wanted to be fully in the room. Because up to that Mm -hmm. point in my life, to be perfectly honest with you, anytime Mm -hmm. I was super visible, there was a part of me that would like check out and I would watch myself.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would
0: watch myself doing it. That was like, if there was any goal from it for me was to be fully present in the room. And that's what occurred. I didn't go to that place of like, I was like fully embodied, fully there. And, you know, I've done a lot of embodiment practices as we've talked about, and I teach a lot of them. You know, from breath work to yoga to, you know, hypnosis to like, there's some visualization. There's so many things that I, you know, uh, Kriyas, things that I teach and that I embody that helped me get there. But that was Mm -hmm. really what was like this pinnacle for me is that that was the most important thing to me that night was that I'd be fully there.
2: I love that because I do know after working with you that the Tony thing was very impressive to me, but I know how disconnected you felt in that moment and how you were expecting it to be something that it wasn't. And so to hear that you were able to not only put like your, your baby out into the world, but like to be fully present for it.
0: And to be fully present regardless of what the outcome was. Right. And that was really, because I think prior in my life, I'd always been worried about what the outcome would be. What would they think? What would people think? Right. And this time around, it was truly, I don't care. But the first time it was like, I'm just going to take in this moment and be present for people. And I didn't even know they were going to come up to me. But when they did come up to me, I was fully present. And the standing ovation that we got on opening night of the film was like icing on the cake. And I actually mm-hmm. took it in rather than like, oh, I don't deserve this. Oh like, no,
1: right.
0: receive. You know, I talk a lot about the four R's of manifestation. and The last one is receive. And that was a big part of that for me was receiving both the positive and the negative and being okay, no matter what.
2: Love it. I'm so excited that people have gotten to know more about your history and your background stories and your journey with visibility. And I'm so excited for the offers that you're going to be putting out to the world so that you can support others with this as well.
0: Yeah. I think there's a big offer coming, the creative leap coming, which you'll be getting emails about if you're on the email list. If you're not join the email list (laughs) and go to the website and get on the email list surrounding your creative leap and you taking the next step in your life and your career and your business surrounding visibility. And there's going to be some other offers as well that relate to getting you to be your most authentically visible self
2: and putting that soul purpose project out into the world.
0: Yes. <laughs> it's time to put it out into the world.
2: <laughs> well, thank you Nick. I appreciate you giving us all the tea and I I know I've enjoyed learning more about you and I I can't wait to hear what people think of this episode.
0: Michelle, thank you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are amazing. You're an amazing host, S with the most S, <laughs> the amazing host of um, today's episode. I know the audience is going to appreciate the questions that you had. And if you have any other questions for me or Michelle, for that matter, out there, send them to us. If you have a question mm-hmm. that you want me to address, send it our way. Check out Michelle. What's your social handle,
2: Michelle? At
0: There we go. And mine, of course, is at the TheNickDemus. Send us your question and leave us a review, a rating. Let other people know that you enjoy the podcast. I thank you so much for spending not only today, but always with us. Have a great rest of your day. See you next time.